The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazelle Amami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hey Matt, how are you doing? Hey, doing good. Margaret is out today, but we have Vulture's resident comedy expert, Jesse David Fox, here with us. Hello. Hey Jesse, it's great to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. We're going to focus today on comedies on television, which we haven't done in a while now, I think. It's been a pretty heavy run of dramas, so yeah. that we'd lighten it up a bit this week. First up, we're going to talk about Key and Peele's latest season and sketch comedies on TV in general. And then we'll discuss Netflix's What Hot American Summer prequel, First Day of Camp. And then we'll take a question from one of our listeners. And if you have any questions for us, please do email us at tvquestions@vulture.com. Also, if you're a Vulture insider, you can exclusively submit audio questions to the Vulture TV podcast. Visit vulture.com slash insiders to apply. So I think it was last week when Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele announced that this season would be their last, which was pretty surprising to fans. How do you guys feel about that? Do you think that this is a good time to bow out? Well, or... quit, quit while you're ahead. Yeah. You know, and they're definitely ahead. It's a great show. They had five great seasons. And I'm frankly a little surprised that it ran as long as it did. Not mm-hmm. not just because it was never a huge show in terms of popularity, but also because those two guys are so brilliant. Their brilliance goes beyond the sketch format. There's so many things they could be doing that I I expected them to get impatient at some point and want to go do them. Yeah, if you read that Zadie Smith profile in The New Yorker of them, especially towards the end, it really got to that this is so easy for them to do that they can just like turn it on and do a perfect sketch and then move on with their day that because they're so talented and because the writers are so talented that they're going to want more. I think it speaks to the fact that no sketch show keeps the same talent for that long. I mean... Mr. Show, The State, we're going to be talking about what American Summer. Eventually, everyone wants to do something in a different form. There's there's only so much, I guess, a performer wants out of a sketch. What could you imagine them doing aside from film? Well, I mean, aside from film, I don't know, but film was the first thing I thought of. <laughs> it was the first thing I thought of because these guys are filmmakers. Yeah. One of the things that distinguished their show very early on was how much attention they paid to form in in the way that they would not just make fun of a particular kind of movie, and it was just people standing in front of a green screen reading cue cards, which is the way Saturday Night Live would often do it, you know, Mm -hmm. in the studio. They went above and beyond. Like, very rarely would a a Saturday Night Live do anything that approached the meticulous attention to to detail that these guys would bring. I mean, it would look, if they would do a parody of an action film, it it would be an extremely specific kind of action film. And it would look like it. It would be cut the same way. It would have the same kind of music. It was unbelievable. And it was like the same attention to detail that they brought to their impressions or to their creations mm-hmm. of characters. And, and there's like there's a kind of a maniacal, fetishistic quality to a lot of their sketches that really, really appealed to me. And also, just as actors, they're tremendous. And not to take anything away from Keegan-Michael Key, who's fantastic, but he often plays, a, if not the straight man, more of a straight man-ish sort of character mm-hmm. when it's the two of them, and it's because Jordan Peele is a genius. He's absolutely brilliant, a brilliant mimic, brilliant physical comic, but there's something more to this guy. There's an intensity, a kind of an eerie, almost Peter Sellers-like madness to him. Yeah. That, and I want to yeah. see what other directors do with that. I think the the comparison that they get the most is Paul McCartney and John Lennon, where though Keegan is 
a very funny performer and he's willing to just be funny all the time. There's something about Jordan Peele that is something, there's something mysterious and you see something behind his eyes that there's more there. You could definitely see him do different types of comedic roles moving forward, not just or kind of maybe bro- even drama. Could you see him branching out a bit? I could. I mean, I didn't even think about that. I mean, you think he'd probably want to do some comedy first, not go yeah. like straight what Kristen Wiig did, which was like she proved that she's one of the funniest people in the world. So then she almost did only dramas. But he just has so much that it is exciting. They Over the last five seasons, you just hear news of they have a new project. And then we haven't really seen any of it besides bit roles in a few movies. So it is going to be exciting to see kind of what they do when they don't have to wrap up a character in three minutes. Well, we have a clip here from this latest season. It's from episode two. It's called Spoiler Alert. <laughs> and it's uh, it's really funny. <laughs> Has anybody seen that new Russell Crowe thriller? Because oh. let me tell you. That's, that's, it. Uh, uh, sorry, it's just we're going tomorrow, and I don't want to know a thing about it. She doesn't gotcha. want to know a thing. Gotcha. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So who won the game? I think that it was... That, I'm going to watch it later. Oh, you're... Oh, you have a DVR. I got it. Sorry, okay. Yeah. Oh. So... Yeah. What's the weather going to be like this... Sorry, it's... We're having a barbecue this weekend, and I don't want to stress about the weather. And no, of course you don't. So the New York Times review of this season noted how it feels a little quieter. Their characters aren't quite as high energy, and I feel like that comes across in this sketch, where it's kind of tapping into the zeitgeist in a way and not necessarily being this absurd, crazy... I mean, they still have that appeal, obviously. They still have that, but, and I just yeah. actually, not, right before we came over here, I rewatched Severed Head Warriors, which is, a, have you seen the sketch? Remind me of that one. That's the one, it's a parody of a Game of Thrones, Conan the Barbarian, sword and sorcery oh, type yes, stuff, and yes. the guy, you know, uh, uh, Peel <laughs> plays the head of the tribe, I guess, and he cuts off the head of another warrior, and he holds it up and goes, Whoa! And he puts it to the right, and they all scream. They and all scream, and, the then, and then he keeps <laughs> exhorting them to roar in unison, and eventually they start to get a little tired of it, and their roars become more half-hearted. <laughs> And then he starts doing shtick. He starts making it talk. He starts doing kind of obscene things with it, and he loses the audience. And and it's a great example of what they do so well, which is the sketch, the, what you think the sketch is about is never just what the sketch is about. Like, that's that starts out, and you think it's a parody of that kind of movie, of a particular scene in that kind of movie, but it's really a, kind of almost like meta-comedy about being a comedian and trying to keep and hold an audience and, like, judging and misjudging and all of that kind of stuff. So it's just, it's great. And I think... You're correct that this season has more understated sketches. And I think it's, if anything, they keep on trying to prove different types of things they can do. And I think season three was maybe, a, if anything, the biggest dip. And then season four felt really exciting because it's much, much darker. There was that, like, crazy Stephen Urkel sketch. Right. Or uh, yeah. <laughs> the one with the guy in the hospital, the Make-A-Wish sketch, which mm-hmm. were, like, truly two of the darkest sketches. So I think this season... If anything, maybe it's like this is their transition into being able to play more understated characters by, yeah. like, there's the That's Awkward sketch mm-hmm. where someone was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything Keegan would say, Peel would he just said be the like, the Dark Knight one. Sure. Yeah, and then yeah. it's like, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. an opinion. You just that was great. Up. Yeah, awkward. Anyway, yeah. yikes. That <laughs> yeah, yeah. was all fantastic. And, that, and I actually wrote down that, that his, his summation of that, which is um, the idea that, like, sharing an opinion 
They, they, he just wants him to share an opinion. He wants yeah. to share an opinion, and he has to physically grab his head and force him to not look at the others. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. which is like 90% of online, you know, what passes for online interaction is him grabbing somebody's head and trying to get them to not look at the others for cues on how to behave and what to say, you know. It does feel like Key and Peele can appeal to a, <laughs> a wide variety of people, unlike a lot of sketch shows where I feel like you have to really understand that type of humor. You can watch one sketch and not laugh and watch another and die of laughter. And they really know how to... Yeah, I mean, that's probably a testament of how huge it's been online, mm-hmm. where if you go to Comedy Central's YouTube page and you search by most popular views, it's like really like the top 40 videos are all Key and Peele things because they try to cover everything. There's sports sketches. There was a sketch about Stan Lee trying to pitch um, ideas, even though they're <laughs> all like him about being old man. It's something like, uh, can't pee anymore, man. Or, it was... You know, it's written by Jay Martell and Ian Roberts. And Ian Roberts was one of the co-founders of the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Mm-hmm. And in years to come, Keen Peel will be studied by sketch classes. It's like, this is what a sketch is like. They quickly assert the premise. They elevate it, elevate it, elevate it, and then be able to get out. And I think their ability to use that formula to so many different things is what maybe it's like. See that, and it's cinematic. And they, and they often, and they also do this thing, like, I don't know, there's probably a proper term for it, but I think of it as, like, the way that a magician will will cover the thing that they're about to do the trick with and then unveil it. And, like, you think you're about to see a particular type of trick, and it mm-hmm. turns out an entirely different trick has been planned for you. And they do that, you know, probably, like, a third of the sketches they do have that structure where you think it's about one thing, and voila, they remove the covering, mm-hmm. and, oh, it's about this other thing. It's great. And also, just on top of that, I can't stress this enough, they're just they're just brilliant performers. Yeah. And, and, you know, one, one of the sketches I really love is, uh, I think it's called Scat Duel. Where yeah. it's, you know, it's two guys on stage, and I love that they go to the trouble of, like, this is the level of specificity that they bring. There's a date, 1963. <laughs> yeah. They make sure to give it a date, and it's set in period. Like, they could have just done it the present day. Who would question yeah, it? Yeah. But they do right. it. And these guys are, are dissing each other by scatting. <laughs> What strikes me about it is not only is it silly, not only is it amusing, but they're actually musically really, really good. Like they're actually doing a good. It's hard just to scat, let alone to do a parody of, of scat singing. And on top of that, a particular kind of scat singing that was popular during 1963. <laughs> it's unreal. It's absolutely unreal. What do you think the value of a sketch show is today? More people are watching this show via clips online than they mm. are necessarily tuning in to Key and Peel on Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. Two, three years ago, there was like this sketch renaissance that now all those shows are kind of not on the air because Nick Kroll ended his show and Keen Peel's about to end. And you can't imagine Amy Schumer would do her sketch show for much longer. Once you get to this level of, of yeah. fame, maybe it's not the most lucrative. If anything, it's a really beautiful display of someone's comedic sensibility. Mm-hmm. And I think it ends up being like a resume or just kind of like a pure artistic statement. They want a bigger playing field, mm-hmm. I think, if anything. They, you know, sketches short by nature. And Unlike Portlandia, which was doing episode-length sketches at this point, or Nick Kroll was doing season-length sketched sitcom hybrids, Kim Peele was, like, very committed to premise, escalate, 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 get out of there. And I think as artists, they want to at least see what they can do, and I think they haven't really had an opportunity. Something like Key and Peele, the fragmenting of attention takes its toll on a person. You know, there is a challenge, there is an element of challenge to producing a lot of short work 
in a very short span of time, often under unbelievable pressure. Yeah. That's fun. That's cool. It's exciting. There's, it's like an adventure. But then at a certain point, there is maybe a part of the artist that wants to just commit to one thing for a year or a year and a mm-hmm. half and just keep endlessly honing and refining that one thing and have a little breathing space, you know. So maybe it's about that. But uh, in any event, we haven't heard the last of these guys. Key and Peel airs Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Comedy Central. Speaking of Key and Peel, Jordan Peel is one of the many, many comedians and actors who star in Netflix's prequel to Wet Hot American Summer, First Day of Camp. Basically, it united the whole original cast in addition to new characters. So we had Amy Poehler, Bradley Cooper, Paul Rudd, Molly Shannon, Michael Ian Black, and so on. And New characters, I believe, include Lake Bell, Randall Park. Michael Sarah, Michael Sarah, Kristen Wiig, John Hamm. It's just like it's unbelievable. unbelievable. <laughs> I, I think Bradley Cooper only came in for one day of shooting, and they got so much out of him. Yeah, He's in the I, whole season. That is incredible. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't have no idea unless the news know. came out. Yeah. So let's start off with a clip from episode four when McKinley, played by Michael Ian Black, and Ben, Bradley Cooper, first meet. McKinley, right? Yeah. Oh, Ben. Hey. I'm the producer. Uh, was the producer. Uh, I guess you and I are in a zoot suit. Yeah, we're doing the zoot suit. <laughs> <laughs> came up with this contraption. I guess the, the, the trademark is that uh, both actors get into the zoot suit and then they play the zoot suit together. I know. I yeah. made the costume. No, you didn't. And to God, I've been into sewing since I was eight years old. Oh, my God. I had no idea you were that creative. Oh, really? Uh-uh. Oh, I just thought it was so obvious that I'm creative. I mean, I just thought, because you're creative, that you would know that I'm creative. I see, Ben. You don't realize that you're creative, too. It's all right. Whether or not you're creative, I think you're really talented. Well, I think you're really talented, too. It was incredibly difficult to pick a clip for <laughs> for this show because there are just so many clippable moments. The show is basically a series of clippable moments. How did you guys feel about how it you know, stayed true to the original and also how it stands as a standalone piece of work? I like it better than the mm-hmm. movie. It feels more precise. The movie felt like they were trying a lot of things, and a lot of those things worked, and what didn't work was also kind of charming, where this felt like they know exactly their tone of joke. And I think the joke writing was stronger. And I also think, which this scene is an indication, the sweet moments were really, really well done. And I thought this moment, partly because you know how it pays off later, because the movie is set a few weeks later, is just really, really touching the way they kind of... yeah. She realized before, and there's just like this really, really sweet moment. And the season doesn't hide away from those. They, they're both really, really funny and really absurd, but then also really tender at other moments. I wasn't as crazy about it as you were. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't. I mean, that's not to say I didn't enjoy it. I did. But um, there's something about the movie. There's some kind of essential magical quality to that movie that mm-hmm. I don't think the show captured. And it substitutes something else, which is precision, Yeah. which you talked about. And there's and because, it, you know, this all of this type of stuff is trial and error, they've had the trial. They made whatever they think their errors were, although I think that movie's perfect for what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now they're applying the lessons, you know, many years down the road. And so there was something a little too... I don't know. I guess I would say a little too meticulous for my taste about it, although it had its moments. But um, what I kept wanting was these moments of kind of ecstatic release that you got from the movie, like mm-hmm. like when it would suddenly shift into lyrical slow motion or, or, or mm-hmm. when, you know, the kind of moments that you're talking about where it's it's sentimental. It's sort of the show is very self-conscious, but also there will be moments of sentimentality or sweetness. Yeah. 
there seemed those seem to be a little bit more divided than yeah. in the movie. The thing that I love about the movie, and it's actually strangely something that Key and Peele sketches occasionally do, is I find myself feeling something. Mm-hmm. And I don't expect to feel something because the the movie Wet Hot American Summer is so s- conscious of being a parody. Yeah. And it occurred to me that it's the same sort of thing that happens when I watch Galaxy Quest, which is ostensibly a parody of Star Trek, but it <laughs> gives you a lot of the pleasures that a straight-up Star Trek movie would give you, even as it's making fun of that kind of movie. Yeah. And there is something like they did capture that kind of movie, and they went beyond it. Like Wet Hot American Summer is by far... The best of all of those, like, dumbass 80s white kids and shenanigans <laughs> kind of comedies. Yeah. But it also captures that randomness where you just don't know why. There's many, many scenes when you're watching something like a Meatballs, uh, you know, or even a later thing like Indian Summer where you're just saying, why is this in here? Yeah. Why? Like, who thought this was funny? You know, and they do that. And yet, not only is it funny, sometimes it's strangely touching. But I wanted a little more of that from the show. But I got to say, I admire the architecture of it. And, and it follows in the footsteps of the fifth season of Arrested Development and the way that it lays out all of these different component pieces and, mm-hmm. and like like pieces on a chessboard. And it's gradually ma- maneuvering them into this checkmate formation, I guess you would say. And that's something that only the kind of long-form storytelling that's intended to be binge-watched can accomplish. You know, like that's a great example of a new form, artists testing the properties of a new storytelling form. It's exciting. They said this was not shot like a TV series. I mean, it was shot like some sort of blob of a three-hour movie, kind of, which I think speaks to somewhat, you said, because they have the space there's a certain level of like we don't have to make every scene have everything they can have this scene will be really really nice and not we're not going to be detached from it and then this scene will be only detached or this scene could be violent or the scene can completely remove us from this reality and there is a nice but i do think there that is probably what is missing from the movie is that kind of everything at once quality and I don't love binge-watching things, but it felt like it needed to because you're like, oh, this is just like a world you're going to live in for a weekend. And I I don't know that we've seen a a comedy that has been so perfect as a binge-watch as this. Most times when we talk about binge-watching, it's dramas. Yeah. You know, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, I got more into it towards the end of the season, but early on I felt like I was just watching episodes of a sitcom, (laughs) even though I really enjoyed it. This has this, you know, intricate, like, connectedness to the... Well, see, for me, you know, Arrested Development got there first, and and Mm. I know I'm in the, you know, not just... I guess I didn't love it as much. (laughs) No, no, probably not, but not only am I in the minority, but probably the extreme minority in saying, I think season five of Arrested Development is the pinnacle. Oh, wow. That is an extreme minority. (laughs) It is, and yeah, and I do, and I think structurally it's one of the great works that television has produced and you can mm-hmm. study you can not just watch it but study it like look at just marvel at the construction of that thing and part of it was a response to the fact that these you know like uh wet hot american summer the key cast members and the rest of development were bigger stars than they were when the show was on the air yeah. and they had to work around their schedules and that's why they had this sort of mosaic almost like a bunch of little teeny tiny short stories that were interlocking but they worked with that, and they made it into something that was... It was Arrested Development, but it was a different kind of Arrested Development. Sure. And, I, and I wonder if maybe some of that scheduling issue didn't come into play here. I think they really succeeded with the limitations. One, how seamlessly Bradley Cooper's just in it. I don't think there's anyone who you feel is in the show less than they are right. in the movie. They're all peppered in a little bit. And there's just so many of them that you... You're not as aware of the sleight of hand Mm -hmm. as you are with Arrested Development. Once you know that the fifth season of Arrested Development was written to make it happen, even though all these actors are really busy, then you start to know why you're seeing what you're seeing. But I don't think that's the case here. Having all these actors together, especially towards the end, 
more of the characters get together in certain things. So there's like parties mm-hmm. or whatever. And you're like, oh, it must have been just, like nice for all of them to get to hang out. People they probably, <laughs> you know, because they're all so busy. Yeah. I imagine Bradley Cooper hasn't seen like Michael Ian Black in 10 years, maybe. You just like have no idea what they're, <laughs> they're like. I mean, I imagine what it was like for the new characters on the set. Like, yeah. Because they have no connection to the original film. And did they feel... I mean, or, or maybe, maybe they, they weren't. Did. Maybe they did. Maybe You're they right. loved it, and it's a dream come right. true for them to be in this. It's not like it had, you know, it's not like it just came out le- like two years ago. Yeah. Right. Michael Sarah was in elementary school when this movie came. Out. <laughs> not to make everybody feel ancient, but wow. you know, so yeah, he, he could have been one of those kids in the original one. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> how did you feel about how they incorporated the new characters? It was great. I mean, no complaints, and especially since it seemed like the new characters generally were playing people who were a little more absurd. Yeah. Like, they were a little more absurd, like, to the point where they almost seemed like they'd been added in post, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's fine. I think that's maybe the best way to introduce new new players into an, an ensemble that's pretty well established. I loved Lake Bell's character. Oh, really? I, 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 <laughs> I found her very... I think I found her frustrating just as, like, a person who once was a teenage boy, but... <laughs> well, it's like, she's so infuriating, yeah, but, yeah. like, you never know what she's going to do or say. She, and then sometimes she's just staring, and you literally have no idea what she's thinking. That absurd absurdity of how, like... Jason Schwartzman was the best new addition. Really? I th- ah. Yeah, I think so. I, I think, think so. I like Michael Sarah the best, who's Did... actually playing, and I can't remember the name, it's like John Steisel or something, who was is a name of a character that David Wayne uses in all of his things, which is also in Wet Hot American Summer because when I just looked, Janine Garofalo is trying to, she, he's talking to David Hyde Pierce for the first time, and right. she needs to leave, I think, to go learn about astronomy or whatever she does. She's like, oh, I have to go meet uh, John Steisel or whatever the guy's name is. And that is the name of Michael Sarah's character. <laughs> so it's like a small <laughs> connection. And there are those, but I, I think... Like you don't have to have a, an encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of the in jokes because I I seen it recently. I only remembered really like the glass shattering, and I'm like, yeah, it's just like the same character. Yeah, and I thought the new kids were really good. The kid yeah. with the curly oh, hair yeah. was just like the kids were good. Such a cute little mope. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you guys think of the the little redheaded snot? <laughs> I wanted to punch him. <laughs> yeah, he was terrible. He yeah. really was a villain in he a was... world. That, a, like, a world of sweet people. It's yeah. a world of sweet people, because even, even there's like supposed to be villain villains in this. Like, um, but he's the real yeah. villain. He's the only yeah. one you're like, he is not He's a bad whatsoever. seed. Yeah. That kid is a bad he's seed. He's a bad seed. And he did a really good, like, kid acting is hard, and he really was terrible. You know, they really do have a knack for putting their finger on cliches that maybe haven't been investigated quite as thoroughly as they should have been yeah. in these parodies. Like, the, like, you know, except for The Simpsons, I can't think of anything that's done the preppies as bad guys thing quite as well as this show <laughs> oh, does right, where right. they're like they're like uh muffy and and uh uh you know wh- whoever you would call him tad tad thank you yeah <laughs> muffy and tad is super villains and they're and they got sweaters around their necks and they're observing things in with summer them. in the summer <laughs> in summer and they're observing things with these enormous binoculars and they're doing push-ups that's my favorite part there's like we can do push-ups too we can do yeah and, and observing proper push-up form and just yeah it's just great i'll say just this great. I and think toxic she... waste actually i remember that I, yeah. suddenly i I got, I got a flashback and remembered that in the 1980s it seemed like you know half the movies the plots revolved around the dumping <laughs> the toxic waste so that was kind of perfect and also i thought chris and wig who comes up in the preppies was in very few scenes, but everything, every she, shot she got, she, she destroyed. She almost, yeah. she must have been there for like two hours, and she's like, "I'm gonna make my presence known." Because I thought she was so <laughs> funny, so she was quickly. Incredible. She's great. There's an eeriness to her 
that mm-hmm. I think makes her special. Like, I, as funny as she is, I'm never quite entirely sure how I'm supposed to take her. There's a moment that she goes, I can't remember what the joke was like, you guys are drinking more that like my dad with like whiskey punch or something. And then she just <laughs> looks into the distance for like three seconds. Because, <laughs> and that's like a classic them joke, but she just, there's like an infinity in her like yeah. stare yeah. that is, she's, there's something special about. But all of it, there's so many performers, and it's, you don't feel like, oh, they're just like getting someone else. Oh, it's Paul Shear just playing. Everyone, you feel like it's worth it. Yeah. They get the best out of everybody. You can watch the full season of Wet Hot American Summer, first day of camp, on Netflix. Up next, we have a question from Daniel. I was wondering if you think the term strong female character is overused or misused these days. For example, on a show like Vikings, the character Lagertha is first married, then a warrior, then an earl, then a lover, doing it all herself. This happens a lot where characters who are considered quote-unquote strong have to do everything themselves. Do you agree? I think there are a couple questions here. Yeah. Uh, First off is, you know, we have the term strong female character and how we use that. And secondly... Is is it used quite literally to mean like someone who does it all? I hate the term. I hate the term because I feel like it gives it gives popular culture permission not to reform itself while pretending that they're reforming themselves. It's especially acute in children's entertainment when you yeah. look at how many how many plots revolve around a male character and he meets a female character who is basically just the same bland ingenue that you see used to see in older cartoons except she can kickbox or something yeah. like that right. and like there's a lot of that thing kind of thing going on in in genre live action animated adult kid like right across the board and I don't like it and this is something that other people have written about too but I don't want to see any strong female characters. I just want to see interesting ones. And they may be heroes or they may be villains, but just make them interesting. Right. That's really all you need to do. Like, you know, Lady Macbeth is a a strong female character in my book. And, you know, Frances Farmer and Frances, like strong in the sense of making an impression on me and I care about yeah. her story, yeah. you know. And, and strong can include vulnerable, you know. Yeah. That's like how we should be. Yeah, it's the use of the word strong somewhere shifted from strong as in like strongly written and came became strength like she actually is strong. I think Rachel McAdams in True Detective has that problem where Nick Pizzolatto was accused of not writing female characters. So his attempt of writing a strong female character was like, she's really great at stabbing. Right. <laughs> but Which is like... Which is on her OkCupid okay profile, <laughs> I think. It's like, why is masculinity the best way a female character can be? Oddly enough, when I think of a quote-unquote strong female character, I always think of Britta from Community mm-hmm. because she is so fallible. Like, her strength is that she's only weaknesses. And that doesn't mean she's a bad character. It means that she is as richly written or as strongly written as her male counterparts, if not better. Yeah. And I think you could apply the same logic to strong male characters, you know, in terms of, you know, you're bringing up children's films. I mean, the male characters aren't necessarily any more interesting. <laughs> no. And nowadays, there's a trend towards, you know, seeing someone show more emotion as a male character is something that's seen as like a more interesting role than the typical masculinity we're used to seeing in all types of media. Well, weakness is more strong than strength, I guess. Right. That's what wins Oscars. Yeah. yeah, Like, (laughs) I mean, strength has been misused somewhere in the last few years where everyone is overcorrecting with their desire to make someone that is like a role model by trying to be perfect or trying to be able to do everything instead of trying to be realistic, like actual female people are, actual male are, which are they 
have a lot of weaknesses, not just a collection of strengths of ability to have it all, as it will. Right. Gone Girl had one of the best strong female roles oh, I've yeah. seen in a long time. And I know that that prompted a lot of think pieces and outrage of one kind or another. But I laugh out loud sometimes when I think about that movie because she's just such a perfect realization of that kind of character. Yeah, because she is a very tren- trenchant satire of the idea of a strong female character. Yeah, and he's right. and he and that and, and, and he is also a exactly, parody of that kind exactly. of yeah. <laughs> that, like... that moment where she you know, she's lying on the bed after she's come back home all bloody and she's she's lying on the bed and he stands in the doorway staring at her like he cannot believe that a creature like her exists and she just stares up at him, there's no dialogue and she just takes lays a hand down on the bed and she pats the bed. <laughs> and then they cut to a reaction shot of Ben Affleck's face and he's you see he's thinking about it. Yeah. You know, it's perfect. It can't get any better than that. Neither of those characters are good people (laughs) that you want to be, you know, unless you're a really sick person. But they're great characters. Completely agree. There was the idea of people who miswatch shows, like bad fans, right? Because it's like the idea of breaking bad fans were just people that want to like Walt to kill everything. And the, the flip side was like people who criticize Mindy for the Mindy Project for not being like a perfect doctor who's like has her life together. Where it's like, no, like why Mindy on the Mindy Project at her best is interesting is that she's a she is a terrible character. Though she is good at being a doctor, she's like terrible about everything outside of the operating room. And that is what makes that character so richly done, I mean, so she's strongly. She's so realistic written. to me. I feel like there are so many women in my life who remind me of her. And that's a sign to me of someone who is just a real character who... You know, she's great. Yeah, she's just effortlessly written. I think she would fit really well on Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> I think you could yeah. just drop Mindy right on yeah. there, and and it would be great. And we've talked about this before. You, Matt, particularly have talked about characters who are funny for themselves and funny for the other people on the show. And Mindy is such a great example of that. She's just like constantly witty and sharp in this way where she's not making. She's not looking at the audience and winking. No, and it's also a great example of a show where every single major character on that show behaves as if the show is about them, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. a big sh- source of the humor for me. <laughs> it's like they're all these just, they're all like lead characters, even if technically they're not the lead. Yeah. And I think that's the way to go. Like the bigger the ego is, the funnier the comedy if it's a comedy. What's going on with that it's, show? It's it's currently, if you follow Mindy on Instagram there, they're, they're shooting, filming. Right? Yeah, they're shooting and it's coming to Hulu. I don't think it has a date yet, but. I'd it's heard about happening. that. I'm glad that's actually happening. Yeah. That's great. It was a pretty quick turnaround. It seems like yeah. it'll be back it in the like air when they it was... knew before they even announced it was canceled that it was going to Hulu. And it'd probably be the exact same show, I think. Yeah, I don't think anything will. It doesn't seem like there's any reason for anything to change. Especially because it's Hulu, not Netflix. So there's still going to be commercial breaks where it's like the right. weird thing about Kimmy Schmidt when it went to Netflix was that they had to take a show that had act breaks and mm-hmm. then just like go to the next scene. So, right. Shows are, it was shot for that is the, a network. I wanted to bring up the other thing, which is like the only thing weird about Kimmy Schmidt was that yeah, it, after the, the ten minutes, like different. the music would play, and that's what's the end of the act, and mm-hmm. then it's just like a scene comes next. It is a little weird <laughs> sometimes when you're watching traditional broadcast network shows without the commercials, and yeah. and they're preparing you for a commercial that never comes. Yeah. Like my daughter was rewatching Freaks and Geeks not too long ago, and that's very traditionally produced, where when they're yeah. ready, they're ramping up to an a, to an advertisement. You hear the the guitar comes in and goes, you know, they cut to a close-up of someone looking troubled. And then then there's a cut and there's four frames of black and it's on to the next scene. It's like, it's weird. Yeah. Of things that are binge watchable, I think comedy's big problem is that it's written to go go up and down and then to then start a show again. It's 
I think next season of Kimmy Schmidt will be better because they'll write it differently. True. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And if you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can find me at Jesse David Fox. I'm Matt Zoller Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites, and you can pre order my book, Mad Men Carousel, which has reviews of all 92 episodes of Mad Men from Abrams Books. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.